Welcome to the Full Potential Podcast. I am your host, Nick Wagner Sr. And every week, I interview guests that share career stories, ideas, and experiences to empower and inspire people to reach their full potential. If you enjoy the episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. Thanks for listening. Harry Moser, uh, founder of the Reshoring Initiative, welcome to the Full Potential Podcast. Great to be here, Nick. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. So, And I'm not Joe Rogan, so we will not go for two hours, but we will jump right in because I want to hear all about you know, how you ended up running a nonprofit focused on reshoring manufacturing jobs in the United States. So I think it's going to be a really cool journey. But I want to first talk, Harry. I want to go way back to when you were a little Harry, when you were a little kid. Was manufacturing something that was like in your family that you always wanted to do when you when you grew up? Like, was this something that you knew was your destiny, this 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 world of manufacturing? Or was this uh, or did you want to do something else when you were a little kid? What, what was that job you wanted to do when you were growing up? Manufacturing. The uh, it, it's been in the family. We I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is right across the river from New York City. And the biggest thing in town is Singer sewing machine. That was the original primary factory of Singer was there back in around 1900, 1910. It was the largest factory of any kind in the world. Two thousand five hundred people, two and a half million square feet, just a huge a monstrosity for the day. And my my grandfather was a foreman there. My dad ran about a third of the factory. I worked there summers from 14 to 22 or something like that, you know, so so I've, I've been doing it forever. <laughs> and and knowing that, you know, knowing you had family that was a part of manufacturing, as you grew up, was it something that you saw they enjoyed and that you thought it would be a good career for you? And and they and they like, you know, brought you in to work at a young age and, and kind of pushed you in that direction? Or were you just naturally were you just naturally interested and curious anyway? I'd say at, at first it was a job, you know, when you're 14, 15, a job's a job. And I was, I was too stupid to go out and have fun. I, I worked every summer, all summer long. And, uh, uh, and but, it, but I got exposed. I, I, I worked in a different department every summer, you know, got to know different things about manufacturing, you know, machining, uh, heat, heat treating, you know, what have you. And, and, uh, and I liked the people that were there. They were really solid good, good people that worked in the factory. And, and, and of course, my dad had a big influence on me and, and it was important to him. So it was important to me. So now you, you ended up going to uh, MIT for uh, mechanical engineering and engineering. So BS and an MS, but I want to ask the question because was there, was, was, was it your choice to go to school or were your parents pushing you to go to school? Because I'm going to guess if you were working in the factory since a young age, you probably had opportunities to just go work when you were done with high school and, mm -hmm. and not necessarily need to go to college. What, what was that discussion like in uh, in your household growing up? I, I think in our case, it was just assumed I would go to university. And, uh, you know, and I I chose and got got chosen by MIT. So 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 that that made it easier to do. And I had a scholarship and, you know, so um, so I think the assumption was that I should go there. But I, mean, I, I was about the top of the high school class. And, and and, you know, generally, that's that's what they do. That's that's what our culture teaches you to do, I'd say. Um, 
but but I think it, you, we'll we'll get into skilled workforce later. But but for an awful lot of people, for an awful lot of people, now something like an apprenticeship can be a very good alternative, especially if especially in comparison to say majoring in sociology or anthropology or you know basket weaving or early something studies kind of thing. You know, for 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 those, if that's the alternative, then the incomes are dramatically higher with the apprenticeship. Yeah, no, and, and I know we'll talk about that because I know that you're passionate about uh, that whole topic as well. But uh, MIT, great school. And I know that, you know, you, you, it looks like you got two degrees while you were there. So not only did you go to a great school, you were an overachiever and got two degrees in, in, fi in five or six years. Five years. Um, yeah. Five years. So you went, first job out of school, you went for what some probably, you know, considered then and still considered today one of the greatest manufacturing companies in the United States, General Electric. So how did you end up at General Electric and, and what did you do in that first, which I think is a very pivotal job out of college? Mm -hmm. Well, GE had, had, probably still has, something they call the manufacturing management program. So in effect, you were being trained to be the factory manager or the vice president of manufacturing or you know, something, something depending on how big the place is and how good you are. And and it, it was very good. They started, I, I was a large steam turbine generator, almost the birthplace of GE, they, you know, these big turbine generators, huge, huge things. And uh, worked there uh, for a year in Schenectady, again, the, the, essentially the home of GE. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they moved me out to San Jose, not bad, and uh, <laughs> to uh, nuclear energy division, and uh, pretty sexy, you know. So then I was there for six months, and, and it was all going very well. I was very happy. And then MIT came to me and asked me to come back and work for them. And that sounded like a really good idea. So I went back to MIT. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because at a very young age, you went back to work in higher education, which I think is is something a lot of people do, I think, maybe further on in their career. But you did it really. You were still you were still pretty young right out of school. 24, um, 25, something. Yeah. And I'm going to I'm going to read the, the actual name from your LinkedIn. So um, industrial liaison officer and assistant director of industrial liaison. So what did tell me what you did for MIT <laughs> and why they called why they called you to do this role? <clears throat> you know, I, one of my professors obviously recommended me, and, and so they, they they brought me back. Uh, the the, the function liaison French word is to uh, be a bridge between two things to, to bring two parties together. That's what a liaison does, and the uh, and so my function and, and there were there were six or seven of us uh, liaison officers, and our function was to. Um, connect various large uh, companies with MIT. So I dealt with Siemens and General Motors and, you know, various companies like that. And in today's dollars, now this was, this was what, 55 years ago, 53 years ago. It's a, a long time ago, you know, ancient history for most of our listeners. Okay. And, and, but so in today's dollars, those companies probably pay, hundred thousand dollars a year each to have somebody like Harry come to them, find what technologies they're looking for, what they need to know about economics, about finance, about whatever, and then find work being done on those fields at MIT and send them papers, invite them to conferences, 
get the professors to go out and visit the company and have discussions. This kind of, so it was a it was a, a way of creating synergies between the companies and and MIT. And in exchange for that, MIT collectively got millions of dollars, and their each year and their professors got visibility. And I got to know MIT better and and to know the company. So this was good. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a really unique role, especially again, especially for someone you know so young in their career. And I know you did that for a little over three years. Uh, and and I think you bring up a great point. I think the relationship between the you know the colleges and universities and you know higher education and the companies is so important. You know that link is so important, which you just talked about. So that was probably MIT was probably ahead of their time doing that way back uh, in the late '60s and early '70s. So kudos to them. Um, you then took another turn, right? So you went from working working for a manufacturer, went back to the you know you went to back to MIT to do some work. And then it looks like you took a, another turn in, in a role where uh, director of marketing research and technical director for, I'm going to say, hopefully say it right, dis, disomatic, is that how you say it? Disomatic, they would say. Disomatic. Yeah. And, and what, um, and it says leading producer of foundry molding machines and related equipment. So this sounds like you went back to the manufacturing world from the higher education world. What made you go back and leave MIT? Um, uh, uh, I, I, I could have stayed at MIT. In fact, they, they offered me a job as like assistant director of the um, the the uh, computer department, like, like where all the computers were that all the MIT people were using. You know, in retrospect, might have been a great job to, you know, to have been highly responsible for computers at MIT. And given that computers have been have done better than foundries <laughs> over the last 50 years. I, I probably didn't did not choose the right career move in that sense. Now I also had an opportunity to to I could have worked at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. They wanted some kind of a manager down there. That would have been cool to do. But 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 for me I I think I think it was the right decision. And it's interesting one you know, somebody in in the machine tool industry um, once said, Harry, what's a what's an MIT grad doing in the machine tool industry? You know, I said, well, you know, there's lots of MIT grads in aerospace and computers and things like that, but I'm just about the only one in machine tools. So it's sometimes it's better to be, a, you know, the, a, the 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 biggest fish in a small pond than a small fish in a big pond. <laughs> no, I mean, I, look, I think I think you you bring up a great point. I mentioned to you earlier we have a lot of early career people that listen to this this podcast. You had a lot of options for for what your you know where your career was going to take you, and you know if you had gone the MIT computer lab computer route, you might not be leading the reshoring initiative today, right? So like you know there, it's like what's behind door number one, two, and three. You just never know, right? So and and it you've had an amazing career. So but I think you bring up a great point that you know always always take a look at the different options and do what's right for you, which is what it sounds like sounds like you did. When you went when he went back to the private sector and did this this marketing research and technical director role, you then you did then did various roles after that all in manufacturing. I'm kind of curious was there um, was there a specific part of manufacturing that, that you really liked? I mean, you, met, you mentioned machine tool, but you did so many different jobs, Harry. It's it, it, it various companies, from research to technical director to aftermarket sales to business planning. Like, what was the what was your biggest takeaway of, of all these different types of jobs? Was it you just kept learning every single one you did? Like, what 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 did you love about that? 
I love manufacturing because it's real. Because you know, at the end of the day, some there's some object, some thing, something you can hold in your hand that's that's been created and and it's and someone's going to use it and get value from it. You know, so 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 I, I like the the tangibility of manufacturing. And again, the the people were have have been consistently wonderful. I I've been involved in um, in various trade associations. The, National Tooling and Machining Association, Precision Metal Farming, American Foundry Society, uh, Association for Manufacturing Technology. You know, wonderful people, you know, across the board, hardworking, you know, Amer America loving, so to speak, you know, committed to the country, um, uh, efficient, technologically competent. Just, it's just been a, a wonderful. Now, if I'd been in, in, uh, plumbing or you know or 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 some probably the people there are, just, are equally good you know in their own way but but I, I i i love my tribe and 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 part of my success was that the tribe has liked me and and so i've got that thousands of friends in the industry so like we have a amt puts on imts it's the machine tool show every even year in cormac place in in chicago and and they in 2018, they had 130,000 attendees. So it's one of the biggest wow. shows of any kind in the country. And, and and there's this bridge sort of corridor between two buildings you walk over. And 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 when when I was still president there at Charmy, I'd walk across that, and maybe 10% of the people I knew, you know, every 10th, they'd say hi Harry, hi Bill, you know, hi Sue, and that's a wonderful feeling to to know. A huge number of people like that, and and, and for them to appreciate what you do, you know, to think to think that you're a, that you bring value to them and to the society, and so so I I'm I'm, I'm rather uh, self actualized, you know. I can I could sit here for weeks, not talk to anybody in work, and, and be happy doing it, but but there's something to be said about the the confirmation that you get when other people tell you that what you're doing, that they think it has value and, then, and that they appreciate what you're doing. You know? Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. And you mentioned Charmy, which is the company that you were the president of for, I think it was over 20 years. Mm -hmm. And what I think is interesting, and I, I want to hear about that because you had multiple jobs at multiple companies across the country with the, that got you all sorts of different experiences where you eventually ended up at Charmy as the president. And you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about like what was it like being the president of a company? How big was it, and and what? Well, let's we'll start there. What you know, what what was it like you know, being president, and you know, how big was the company? Well, when I came in in 1985, uh, it had gone through a rough patch. It had uh, they had just moved from uh, Long Island to outside Chicago, and inventory was a mess. People lost. Uh, it's it just horrible and not, not not taking good care of the customer at all it was bad and 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 i i got there and 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 it, it, it was like half as big as the head hunter had told me that it was you know it, it was bad and uh, but good good people still, still a lot of good people and and good product and improving product and you know in, in some ways i was there at the right time but but 
I put my focus on the customer, certainly the employee. You always have to have the, without the employee, you got nothing. But 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 finally, to get the employees to 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 focus on the customer, and so I, in the over my whole time there, I probably spent a third of my time in the field all over North America with the customer, and and at first it was tell me what we're doing right, tell me what we're doing wrong. And I heard an awful lot about what we're doing wrong. And then I come back to the company and we'd fix the things that we were doing wrong. And then we'd start to measure everything. How are we doing on answering the telephone? How are we doing on spare part shipments? How are we doing on training of our service engineers, training of the customer, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and tracking and posting and documenting and, 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 Making that that data available to, to the customer, but also to you know the sales force to use to sell, and and to the employees to, to see it, so they knew that it was part of their job to achieve those good results. So when I started, we were either number seven or number eight in the industry in the in North America, and within about six or seven years, we were number one. So we went from you know way back in the pack to to to, to being number one, and now we. Corporate came out with really good product, really good machines, and and we hired some wonderful people, and we had a great set of distributors, and you know th things went right. But so by the, I think when I started, sales were maybe uh, eighteen million a year, and when I retired, they were a hundred something million a year. So it was it was very nice, you know, very nice. Uh, the, the the best best time was nineteen ninety. Eight. That was just a booming year for machine for the industry for the country for machine tool sales, and in in December we were having a price increase January first, and in December I'd be walking past the sales office, and the fax machine was just spitting out orders coming in every piece every couple piece of paper was another hundred thousand dollars of business coming through. You know, uh, one of the things we did very very well, I think. Um, since, since it was growing, you're just growing like this. Um, every time we had a record bookings week, every employee got something, $50. I, I don't know what, what something. And every time we had a record bookings month, they'd get $100. You know, and every time we had a record booking year, everybody would get, I can remember, $200. You know, some number, some numbers sort of like that. And so everybody was always, what, what do we have to do to get, to, how are we going to make it? <laughs> so, so I know a lot of, a lot of my listeners probably don't know what the machine, machine tool industry is, Harry. So what kind of, what kind of um, in, like products were you actually making and who are you selling them to? Okay. So, so just for background, a machine tool is a uh, mechanized device into which you put something typically a block of metal think maybe steel maybe aluminum and and it um, changes the shape of that hunk of metal either by cutting away some of it or by bending it and forming it yep. and, and and there's like 10 different processes depending on exactly what it's doing but but the, the idea is to uh, back thousands of years ago, people would take a file and do this to make something, you know, and then and then we had manual machines where you'd turn handles and things to make things move. But but eventually you have uh, computer controlling where the tool goes around on the workpiece and moves the workpiece and comes up with this really complicated shape. Think of, a, you know, portions of a jet engine, for example. So specifically, Charmé, where it gained its fame initially was 
EDM, electrical discharge machining. So there's wire EDM, there's die sinking EDM, wire being the biggest category. And the wire is used, for example, to cut out the, uh, the, the die and the punch so you could stamp out something like a fork. There's, there's, to make a fork, there's a, there's a die that has the shape of a fork, and there's a punch that has that. And once like a male and a female come down, bump, and there's another fork, so to speak. And, um, and then the, the sinker was used to create the openings in a plastic injection mold. So you, you have an injection mold, has cavities, and you pump plastic into it, and it creates a shape, a Barbie doll, you know, you know, uh, something, a cup, something. And, and, and so the machines were used for that, but the, initially, and then for medical devices like implants and uh, jet engine components and you know, nuclear weapon pieces and all, all kinds of things like that. So very comp hard metal cut to very exacting tolerances. So, so and, super high-tech, mostly high-tech manufacturer. Yeah, but, but I mean, some of it was very high tech, but some of it was most most people would say injection molding is medium tech, for Got example. It. OK, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. One, wonderful industry. We had great people. And again, it was it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you had an amazing experience being the president of this company uh, for for quite a quite a quite a long time and, and took it from, like you said, you know, not doing very well to to doing fantastic. So I think that was, you know, obviously a, an awesome experience. Now you retired at the, in what was it? 2007, eight timeframe. Do I have that right? I stopped being president around 2007 and became uh, chairman and then chairman emeritus or emeritus. Some people would say, and like honorary chairman. And, and as such, I, phased out. I no longer had operational responsibility, but I do projects and studies and research and, you know, help them with customers and things like that. And, uh, and, and that took me through to 2010 when I fully retired. I was, I was off the payroll and entirely on my own. Yeah. So, so I, I want to ask the question because I want to get to the, the whole topic of what you're doing today with your nonprofit, but I want to ask the question. You were the CEO of a company doing over a hundred million dollars in sales. You were an engineer by trade. How, how do you feel all your experiences and your education prepared you to be the president of the company? Like, do you, do you, do you feel okay. like, well, how did, how did that go? Well, I, I also have a, an MBA from the University of Chicago. So that provided me with the that helped. accounting knowledge and marketing and uh, you know, strategic planning and all that, that, that more managerial side of things and the and the engineering obviously prepared me for the, the, the technical side of things. And, and, uh, and then I've been fortunate to have a lot of good people to work with that, that helped me develop the relationships. Because finally, um, being able to deal with the, the employees, deal with the customers, you know, deal uh, provide to have them have confidence in you. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So I was at a an NTMA conference, and I'm standing there talking to Bill, and Dwayne comes over, and Dwayne says, "Bill, don't let Harry take you to dinner." And 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 Bill says, "What's the matter? He's a nice enough guy. Free dinner makes sense." And Dwayne says, "Well, about three years ago, Harry took me and Shirley to dinner." And since then, I've bought $3 million worth of his machines. <laughs> uh, 
it, it, I, I laugh, but you, you seem to really understand how important the relationships were. And, and honestly, the, the people are usually the hardest part of most businesses. It's not, it's not the technology, it's the people. I mean, you, you know, how do you, how do you interact and how do you, how do you build the trust? So I love, um, I love that story. And I love how, the, how you've always focused on the people with your employees first. I think that's a great, I think that's a great lesson. But I want to ask the question. So you had this, you had this super successful career, you finally retired. And then you decided what, like you, 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 you couldn't just, you couldn't just sit, sit at home and, and, you know, do hobbies and, 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 you know, just relax. You had to do something else. Is, is yeah, I'm, I'm much like I'm, I'm much too energetic. You can see me bouncing here a little bit. Kind of thing, yeah. So I'm, I'm too, I just for, for, for background, I, I, uh, in a recent week and a half, I, I played, played singles tennis, uh, uh, eight or nine days in a row. Now, so I've, I work out every day. I've missed missed ten days in the last twenty years, kind of thing. So, wow. so I'm I'm very energetic, very healthy, very you know. And and for me to sit would be, I'd probably collapse after a couple of days. <laughs> yeah. So so was your did you have the idea for the reshoring initiative before you fully retired? Was this something that you had been planning and you're like, I think this is where I want to take my career next? Yeah, I, actually. Maybe five years before then, starting when I was still running the company, I, I developed strategies to help companies decide how to avoid China. Now, here's what China's good at. Here's what they do well. Here's the kind of products they're good at. Here's the kind of products you should go after and the methodologies you should use to, so, to succeed in, in these other categories. And, and so I, I did that and got some nice attention with that. And then I said, well, no, let's got to be a little more aggressive. We got to figure out how to take the work back from China or from other countries that had taken it from us. And so, so and that's what reshoring is, is to offshoring is to make the product somewhere else to supply the U.S. market. And reshoring is to once again, produce it in the U.S. for the U.S. And, uh, and so I said, well, that sounds like fun. And, and so I started that up maybe halfway through the chairmanship and uh, and incorporated it maybe a year after I fully retired and then gradually brought on part-time people you know to help and uh, and again was was blessed to have the have the support of of those trade associations I mentioned the AMT NTMA PMA AFS uh, Gardner Publishing, you know, various groups like that that came on and said, yeah, sure, we'll help and 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 did either money or or pro bono support of some kind and and uh, and and they were enthusiastic and supportive and and so I just kept you know building it and growing it and it was it's still it's still not huge, you know it's not uh, you know there's no nobody's getting rich on it, but 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 it but it we've been very we've been blessed to, to have the results that we've had. Yeah. And now, yeah, I want to clarify a couple of things. So you 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 are a nonprofit. So the Reshoring Initiative is a, is a nonprofit from from the research I did, and the you know you have multiple people that work for you. So I know you're the you're the president and the founder, but you have multiple people that work at the organization to help help with the nonprofit. If I and I, I appreciate you describing what Reshoring is because I was going to ask you that question because most people probably do not did not know that. So thank you. What is the goal of of the, the, your your nonprofit. So if if you meet someone at a trade show or you meet someone and they're like, Harry, what does the reshoring initiative do? How do you explain that to to someone uh, in the industry? You know, our, our mission is to uh, 
increase U.S. manufacturing by 40, that's 40%, which would mean bringing, increasing the uh, number of employees, manufacturing employees in the country from 12 million to about 17 million, to about 5 million jobs. And, and we picked that number because that's how many it would take to have a balanced trade deficit, you know, to eliminate the trade deficit, have balanced trade. So the trade deficit is uh, your your imports minus your exports. And the, and the difference is if you import more than you export, then you have a trade deficit. Otherwise, you have a trade surplus. And the U.S. has a trade deficit that's almost one trillion. That's T trillion dollars per year. And that's about five million jobs worth of output. So we we set that as a target and and we uh, we, we've ident we identify the jobs that have come back either by reshoring, which is done by a U.S. company, think General Motors, for example, or FDI, foreign direct investment, which is done by foreign companies, Toyota. So either of those, if they decide to produce in the U.S. instead of producing somewhere else, then they've brought jobs to the U.S., and then we count those. And, and the, the sum of all those that we've counted uh, in 2010, uh, in that year alone, 6,000 jobs were announced. Uh, last year, 2020, in the year, 160,000 were announced. And this year, we expect 200,000 or more. So, so it's been a you know, more or less continuous uptrend like this. And you know we're, we're certainly not the only factor causing it, but we're probably the most visible factor that has made this uh, uh, a trend within the country. So what what is a I, I, I want to ask this because I think it's going to be an interesting answer. What is the typical day for for you leading this nonprofit? Like, how do you how do you make this happen? Because, you know, I'm going to I'm going to be honest, Harry, this seems like a monumental undertaking <laughs> to, to, to try to to try to move the needle on this, because yeah. to your point, for so many years, companies were sending jobs out of the U.S. from a manufacturing perspective, and you're, you're trying to bring them back. And I know that uh, not not trying. Remember, remember what Yoda said to Luke Skywalker when he was trying to pull the fighter out of the monkeys. Don't try do. So do. we're doing it. So, yeah. So what does a typical day look like for you? Like, how do you make this happen? Uh, typical day, uh, let's say weekends are easy. I just work because nobody inter interrupts me. I don't, I don't get many emails. I don't get telephone calls. I, I normally don't do podcasts on the weekend. Well, I appreciate <laughs> so, that. Yeah. So, so, so weekend, t 10 hours a day, I just work. I get caught up on all the stuff I didn't do during the week. On the weekdays, typically... I'll have maybe four uh, scheduled uh, Zoom meetings, telephone calls, Zoom meetings with various people that want to talk or that I want to talk to about cooperation, about sharing, about us getting some money somehow, you know, doing something, you know, helping them achieve their objectives. So maybe have four of those and then uh, get, you know, a hundred emails that have to be answered and, maybe 500 that don't get answered that are junk, you know, the, the junk stuff. Yeah. And, and so sorting through all those and, and so going through, I get lots of newsletters from like trade associated SME and industry week and be like, and, there, and you go through this 
And almost everyone mentions a case of reshoring or a case of foreign direct investment. And then I send that on to Miller, who's in charge of the library, and she takes those and she puts them into the library so that we get our 160 or 200,000 jobs that have been identified during the, um, you know, each year. And uh, uh, so it's a lot of writing. We, We write one or two, maybe two, maybe three articles a month. Um, have a wonderful uh, team member, Sandy, who who typically drafts them and then I edit them and we, you know, we send them out. Uh, have a column called Mo- Moser on Manufacturing, which is in uh, Assembly Magazine, in uh, Fab Shop Direct and Industrial Heating. And we also put articles into uh, Modern Castings and other magazines. And we, we periodically have articles in Industry Week, which is a quite a big time national journal. Um, so so we, we're writing, uh, editing, talking, and, <laughs> and doing I, webinars and podcasts. And I believe you were um, part of uh, President Obama's insourcing forum and, a mem- and according to your bio, a member of the Department of Commerce Investment Advisory Council. So you get involved at the government level as well, it sounds like. Yeah, the way I, th- I think of it, we, the, the reason we offshored so much is that U.S. manufacturing cost is 20, 15, 20 percent higher than Germany's, 40 percent higher than China's. So companies, when they look at that, say, of course, I got to go there to get it kind of thing. And so so my job is, despite that disadvantage, to help companies see that maybe 20 or 30 percent of what they import if they do the math correctly, they will bring back. And so that's 90% of what we do. And then 10% of what we do is is um, advocating with the government to convince the government to take actions, policy actions that will reduce those price disadvantages relative to those other countries. Th- things like getting the US dollar down. Mm-hmm. Uh, do- US dollar is exceptionally high because we're the reserve currency. That, that drives up the dollar, we say, take it down. Uh, get that uh, much, m- huge, big increases in students going into apprentice programs and credentialing programs, rather than everybody going on to university uh, w- without much care as to what they're studying, so to speak. Um, keep the corporate tax rates low so the ret- after-tax return on investment is high. Perhaps have a value-added tax that would almost every other country has and puts a 15% tax on everything being imported in addition to duties, and we don't do that. So there's, there's a series of things like that that we advocate to the government, and, and so far they have, haven't exactly done, but that we continue to advocate. <laughs> I'd love to talk a little bit about the idea of not going to college or university and att- attending a technical school or becoming an apprentice, because one thing, Harry, that I think I've noticed I'm in Connecticut. We have a huge manufacturing industry in Connecticut and there we we have a hard time filling jobs. We have a lot of baby boomers that are retiring and a lot of our younger generations do not want to get into manufacturing either Mm -hmm. because they don't know about it or they don't understand the opportunity. So share a little bit about some of the work you do in that front on helping people, you know, understanding what opportunities there are and and apprenticeships and things of that nature. a lot. I I put a lot of the blame on the U.S. government. Um, about eight years ago, Department of Labor 
invited me down to tell them how to get the workforce ready for all the jobs I was going to bring back. Okay, so we're in the Department of Labor Secretary's conference room, and they said, "Okay, tell us what you what you've got." And I said, "Well, first the department has to stop being part of the problem and become part of the solution." <laughs> so I had their attention. I wonder how and that went over. Yeah, they show us, and and I pulled up one of their websites, and it, and I'm sure all of you have seen it. It shows it's it's a bar graph, horizontal bars like this, and it starts with no high school, high school community college, some four-year, four-year, master's, PhD, and income growing up with number of degrees. And it was headlined, Education Pays. And I said, I thought you were the Labor Department. You're responsible that we had to have the manufacturing workforce that we need, and you're responsible for the apprentice program. Why doesn't this say education and training pay and and have the average income of an apprentice graduate in here along with the bachelor's and the master's degree and see right. that the apprentices make as much and therefore the guidance counselors, the student, everybody said, wow, hey, that's a good alternative. You know? and, and they immediately folded and more, did more or less what I wanted them to do. Okay. So, so, but, and yet still there's dozens of pages on their websites and the Department of Education websites that sh- suggest that education degrees is the only way to get ahead. Rather than, rather than acknowledging that training can have equal or greater results. So there's a lot of study done by a, a Professor Carnival at Georgetown. He's got a center that looks into this. And he, he has data that shows that <clears throat> apprentice programs, tra- income is better than uh, uh, several of the degree fields in a bachelor's degree, and that a five or six credentials can often pay as well as a bachelor's degree. I know there's a program down in North in, uh, in Kentucky associated with one of the automotive companies and their uh, apprentice graduates five years at the out of the apprentice program are averaging, I think, $97,000 a year, wow. which is only only 2000 less than the average for Ph.D holders. Okay. So, so I'm not saying every apprentice gets that. I'm sure it's automotive pays better than other, you know, it's, 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 but, but there's no question that, that uh, really like one, I did a study once and I compared uh, a tool and die apprentice to an English major and the, the tool and die apprentice started to make money at 18, right out of high school, you know, whereas the, the English major paid, didn't make money and paid tuition. Right? And then I had the incomes for each. The tool and die maker always made more throughout his career, a little bit more. I paid half the difference in taxes, invested the other half at 7% per year. And at the age of 49, the tool and die maker had a million dollars more than the English major. But how many guidance counselors have ever told their students that that that, that is a viable alternative to just going off to university and studying something and getting a degree? Because everybody who gets a degree is going to make more money than everybody who doesn't get a degree which is just patently false. Yeah, know? no, I, I think you bring up a great point. And I'm glad, I'm glad you're talking about this. I think, I think it is really important. And I think, I, at least what I've seen, I think we are seeing a, a shift where a lot of companies are, are no longer requiring degrees. And I think you're seeing more, uh, more people talking about what you just said, apprenticeships and technical college and community college and certificates and, <clears throat> and other options to for your, for your colleges and universities because the cost is so high. And I've had people on this show that have been super successful with no college degree. And I've had people on the show that have been super successful with a college degree. So, I mean, to your point, right? I mean, um, there's a lot of I've, options I've, out there. 
I've got a cute story for you. I was giving a speech up at University of Wisconsin Platteville, and there was a fellow there from Milwaukee Area Technical College, which is a community college, a big, a big community college, but training technical things. And he, he was very proud of the fact that his community college is the second largest graduate institution in, in Wisconsin because only Madison, the main campus for University of Wisconsin, has uh, more students who had already gotten at least a bachelor's degree and, and are students at the facility. So these so th thousands, I guess, of people in Wisconsin who have a bachelor's degree of some kind, in typically in a liberal arts field, are coming back to Milwaukee Area Technical College to get a degree in auto mechanics or tool making or something else, so they can actually make a living. <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I, I think the the interesting thing about manufacturing is it's obviously changed over the past hundred years. So, manufacturing is it's super much of it like what you were doing, super high tech, um, like very uh, very safe, right? A lot of people think manufacturing they're like, oh, you know, how safe can manufacturing be? You know, a lot of the manufacturing facilities you go to today are super safe, super clean, super high tech. So I think that 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 image might, people may have of what manufacturing was is not what it is today. Would you agree? Yeah, there's certainly exceptions. I mean, there, there, there's you know, there's law offices, little sloppy law offices somewhere, and, and there's you know dirty restaurants, and, and there's and there's a few factories that aren't great, but there's. There's most factory to, to get good people and keep them today. You have to, you have, it has to be very nice. Just, just reminds me of this cartoon that I often use. And it's, it's, it's a restaurant and there's four guys working in the kitchen. And this is the youngest one. They're all smoking you know, cigarettes or something. They all got beards and long strictly hair. And, and the kid is working in the, in the sink and he's obviously complaining. And one of the older guys turns to him and say, kid, stop complaining. All of us have PhDs in English literature. <laughs> no, I mean it, it is. I, I bring that up because I think it is important for people to realize that, you know, it, manufacturing has changed quite a bit. And and you know, for a lot of people out there, we, we know we hope they do consider it as a as a as a as a, a career. So I do I do have a couple couple questions before I always close with my same question I always ask everyone: If people want to get involved, Harry, with the Reshoring Initiative, what is the best way? to get in touch with you and your, your organization? Uh, info at re reshorenow.org. Uh, and the, our website is uh, reshorenow.org. So you go that and you can, there's a contact page where you can send a question in, you know, do whatever. Uh, you know, we're always looking for, like if any, any of you out there have, have the time, we're always looking for interns, un, unpaid interns, unfortunately, but you know, someone who, where we can find some interesting, challenging, rewarding kind of uh, activity that, that might might have a good good place on your resume like, for having done something you know interesting and creative like that. So we're we're uh, delighted to hear from people. <clears throat> the other thing they can do if they're working at a company and the company has reshored, we'd love to hear about it. Or if the company if they hear the company's having problems with its imports, we can't get the pumps from China because of the, you know, the, the cargo ships that aren't <laughs> getting through kind of thing, you know, well then say, why don't we boss, why don't we buy them here or make them here? And the boss will say, cause it's more expensive here. Have you looked at the total cost of ownership estimator at the reshoring initiative? It'll turn out that if the prices are within 20, 25%, probably it's more profitable to get them here. 
Very interesting. Well, and what, the other thing, Harry, we'll include your LinkedIn profile in our show description, and we'll also include your website for the Reshoring Initiative as well, so people people can see it there. So I always close the same question, Harry, which is, what is the one piece of advice that you would give my listeners that's helped you reach your full potential throughout your career? So you've had a, a really successful career, both you know in the private sector, in the higher education field, and now as a non as a nonprofit founder. What is that one piece of advice that you'd share that's helped you be so successful? So what helped me get there that, that they might learn from, huh? Um, so, so for me, uh, relative to most people, I'd say, I'm going to have to say two things. One, that's fine. Be, be good with people, be nice to people, and they'll be nice to you is one. They'll, they'll, help, they'll help you succeed at what you want to do. And then two is work your ass off. So I've, for the last 35 years, I've worked, you know, 60 or so hours a week, and, and most people don't want to do that. I, that's, okay, that's okay, but and then at least, at least for the 40 or 45 hours a week that you do work, really work hard, you know, maximize the results for yourself, for your company, and if if you do that, if you're seen as the person that's the go-getter, that's the that's hungry for the next task, that's that that's got the energy to to get the job done on time, you're you're going to get ahead. You know, be honest, be good with people, work hard. It works. Yeah, no, I, th I think that's great advice. And I mean, I, I think uh, clearly you have no lack of energy because even during retirement, you're working seven days a week and playing <laughs> tennis and, and still keeping active. Um, so Harry, Harry Moser, I really appreciate you making time to join the Full Potential Podcast. Fantastic career journey. I love what where you've been and what you've done and how you're focusing your efforts now with your nonprofit. So I want to just say thank you for making time. And uh, again, we, we wish you the best. and We'll make sure to link to your, uh, your website and your LinkedIn profile. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Full Potential Podcast. If you'd like to hear more interviews, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. You can also connect with us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And don't forget to check out our website, fullpotentialmovement.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and be well.